Turn with me this evening, if you would, to Psalm 73. There's a couple of other things in the flurry of announcements and so forth this morning and last week. I forgot last week when we brought the new prayer cards for several of the missionaries and works and put them in the back. And please, if you didn't get those last week, those are scattered on the shelves instead of on the table. But also, I uh, just brought in a little supply of a new printing of um, a catechism for little children. And uh, these are tucked away somewhere there, I think on the lower shelf. Uh, so there are copies of these. Uh, these are grounding the very young. So this is not as the larger catechism for those of great capacity, but uh, like the little children's catechism we used to have. So these are available as well. And also, I neglected to tell you this morning, uh, we're very encouraged you folks were, as is so often the case, uh, very generous to our brother Aaron. Uh, We had just a little bit under $3,000 Uh, that came in for him uh, over the last couple of weeks, and so we just rounded that up to an even three, but uh, we're so grateful to you for that, and uh, he sends his appreciation, said he was very humbled by the gift, so thank you for your generosity to him. I want to read this evening, last Lord's Day evening, I mentioned we were shamelessly re-preaching our Brother Bannister's sermon on Psalm 35, or 37, rather. Coming this evening, not with another man's sermon, but thoughts from Psalm 73 ourselves. That psalm is the psalm of David. And as we saw, it's a psalm that was written in the mature years of his life. And it's a psalm where he puts forth, uh, honestly, a frequent struggle, and that is toward fretting. Uh, The noble or the motives of that psalm may be somewhat more noble than the motive we will find in the psalm we read this evening. That was a psalm that struggled with frets with regard to the advancement of the ungodly and struggling with understanding the purposes of God. This is a psalm that touches that theme, but it approaches it from a different direction. And this, a psalm of Asaph. And so let us read together and consider something of this psalm this evening. Psalm 73. Truly, God is good to Israel, even to such as are of a clean heart. But as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped. For I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. They're not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. Therefore pride compasseth them about as a chain. Violence covereth them as a garment. Their eyes stand out with fatness. They have more than heart could wish. They're corrupt and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walketh through the earth. Therefore his people return hither, and waters of a full cup are wrung out to them. And they say, How doth God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches. Verily, I have cleansed my heart in vain, and washed my hands in innocency. For all the day long have I been plagued and chastened every morning. 
If I say I will speak thus, behold, I should offend against the generation of thy children. When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then understood I their end. Surely thou didst set them in slippery places. Thou castest them down into destruction. How are they brought into desolation as in a moment? They are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awaketh, so, O Lord, when thou awakest, thou shalt despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved, and I was pricked in my reins. So foolish was I, and ignorant. I was as a beast before thee. Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast holding me by my right hand. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel, and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but thee? There's none upon earth that I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For lo, they that are far from thee shall perish. Thou hast destroyed all them that go a-whoring from thee. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God, that I may declare all thy works. Amen. We trust the Lord will add his blessing to the public reading of his word. Let's do bow our heads together as we begin this evening. Our Heavenly Father, we come tonight and we count it a privilege to join the hallelujah of the hymn writer. What a remarkable miracle that we would love Jesus. Our hearts by nature are twisted to love things of the world. To love that which is ruined. To strive toward deeper ruination. You've breathed life into such dead hearts that we might be turned to love You. To love life. Personified wisdom in the Proverbs speaks and says, All they that hate Me love death. And what, a, what an awful thing to see a world in love with death. We're grateful that in our Savior we see the death of death in the death of Christ. Help us with the psalmist to have our eyes rightly focused. Lord, give us in the close of this Sabbath meditations that will help us as we go forth tomorrow and through this week and view this world. We ask and pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. We've remarked that Spurgeon said Asaph often seems to sing in the minor key. And truly, when you look at the Psalms of Asaph, they're Psalms that are most thoughtful indeed. It's not to take anything away from the thoughtfulness of David. It's just that we have so many more Psalms from him and so many different perspectives and so many varied circumstances. But the meditations of Asaph are quite searching. And as we come to the psalm that is before us this evening, it is a searching psalm to be sure. I want just to walk through its, its real refrains this evening and ask the Lord to guide us in our meditations with Him. 
But the opening verse of the psalm in many ways is the key to the whole. He gives us his conclusion before he tells us his story. He says, truly, God is good to Israel, even to such as are of a clean heart. It's a psalm that's going to ask searching questions. It's a psalm that asks hard questions and a psalm that in the very questions it exposes shows some terrible wrestlings of heart and really confessions of wrong thinking. But it's a psalm that having worked through those problems reaches a glorious conclusion. There are more than Asaph certainly in Scripture that ask questions like these. You can think of the complaints of Jeremiah as he struggled with what God was doing among his own people and then in the Babylonian Empire, what God was doing even with himself, bearing truth in the midst of Jerusalem in those days. Job certainly wrestled with deep, deep questions of the realities of life here under the sun and looking at the ungodly versus the godly. And here it is with Asaph. I really want to look at the psalm in two portions. The opening 14 verses where he outlines for us his struggle. And then from verse 15 to the end where the conclusion and really his marveling at himself, he's shocked at himself and he puts it on display. But the struggle he puts before us is real. And it's a struggle if we don't engage in gospel thinking that we, and I'm tempted to say you young people, particularly looking at the youth and the liveliness of this fallen world, but it is not just the young that have these struggles. And so the psalmist begins, he says, having given that conclusion that God is good to His people, he says, but as for me, my feet, verse 2, were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped. And then he gives us really the root of the matter. For I was envious at the foolish. Now he's going to go forward and give some things that he's observed. He sees the prosperity of the wicked. He sees no bands in their death. He sees them imagining this strength that is firm. They're not in trouble as other men. They're not plagued as other men. Pride compasses them about as a chain. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes, verse 7, stand out with fatness. They have more than heart could wish. One translator dealt with that, kind of putting the phrase backward. The wishing being vain wishes that are what they, they set their hearts upon. These things that they pursue. And for the psalmist who has at this point looked at them with perhaps longing eyes, there aren't any barriers that they feel. There are no boundaries they feel like they live inside of, can't go outside of. And he looks now, not perhaps even with the perplexity of Jeremiah or say a Habakkuk, having to struggle and say, Lord, how can it be? We know Israel's got problems, but you're putting Israel down and you're giving ascendancy to the Babylonians that are a more wicked people than they are. What are you doing? I don't understand. I'm perplexed. Well, Asaph is brutally honest and doesn't tell us this state of affairs perplexed me. 
He just cuts to the chase and says, I was envious. And what does that show but a lack of right thinking? It shows an embrace of the thinking of the flesh that would pursue unrighteousness, that would pursue selfishness, that would pursue avenues of pleasure that are contrary to God and contrary to our neighbor, and think somehow that there's value, that there's happiness in that path. To be envious at the foolish. Here, I say Asaph is writing thankfully from a position of recovery as we come to the conclusion of the psalm or really hear his confession here at the beginning of the psalm. He's not looking then at his observations and trying to render excuses. Habakkuk at least says, Lord, I'm I'm trying to piece this together. Here's Israel, here's Babylon. Here's, yes, sin and wickedness, but here's open, deeper sin, open, deeper wickedness. What are you doing? I don't understand. Habakkuk or Asaph isn't even trying to, to hide the reality here. He says there was a season in which I took my eyes off the Lord. Ultimately, is where he's going to go. And without seeing you, without seeing rightly, I began to think the way they think. And I became envious at their godless pursuits. Envy is an awful crime. One suggested that envy appeared even in Eden. The avenue through which Satan approached our first parents that made Eden. That made paradise appear to be an insult. What folly. What folly it is. And so the struggle that he has is looking at the ungodly. Looking at sin as if it had good ends. If its pleasures were real. If it's, as if its pleasures were valuable. As if its pleasures were be, to be desired. Rather than the pleasures at God's right hand. And so here he honestly puts before us his struggle. He outlines some more of their thinking as we come look in verse 11. The heathen reason and say, how does God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? You think about what we've discovered in Romans. That speaking conscience in the heart of the Gentiles that had not the fuller revelation that Israel had been given. There was a law written in their hearts. And yet in seeking to suppress that, and in going in their own way, when they acknowledge the Most High, they say, well, He can't know. He won't know. We won't be held accountable. And there they pursue their sins. And he comes to verse 13 to an awful thought. He says, Verily I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocency. For all the day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. Envy is destroying his thinking. But when we come to verse 15, 
the psalmist begins to unfold his better thought. If I say I will speak thus, behold, I should offend against the generation of thy people or thy children. When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. The psalmist is chronicling a progression in his thought. He's known something of the conviction of the Spirit Himself individually. He speaks at the very opening of the psalm as for me, my thoughts, my envying was present. But then I begin to weigh it further. How does this mindset, how does this view of the world, how does this pursuit of self and of sin impact God's people? He begins to think in a more broad way than just himself. It's a profitable change of thought. We're tempted at times to think that sin and lawless pursuits don't impact God's people. They don't impact others. Let me highlight before you again, there is no such thing as private sin. Sin impacts others always. For no other reason. If we could even imagine an outworking of history in this way, you force others to live with a sinner. That in itself, with the best of motives, is not an easy thing. So often we find ourselves in sin answering sin. But he goes beyond this. From verse 16, he says, When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then understood I their end. I always like to pause. I remember in my youth being impressed with this psalm, and I almost wanted to put a, a long hyphen in between the word I and there. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then understood it's a gospel heart of understanding that changes its view of the world but of course he says understood I their end and he says surely thou didst set them in slippery places thou castest them down into destruction how are they brought into desolation as in a moment they're utterly consumed with terrors and we see here that the psalmist brought into the sanctuary of God we highlighted this Our brother Jeff highlighted this last Lord's Day evening from the standpoint of the means of grace. That the house of God and the means of grace are such a fruitful and helpful place for us to come and approach even the the issue and the struggle with fretfulness. But here as we come into the presence of God, this understanding is brought. But think with me a little bit about this understanding. Here he's confronted, he's reminded again of of the destruction of the ungodly, of punishment for sin. All of those things are very real. But it's easy for us sometimes to think, well, you know, I looked at the world and they were having a good time and I wasn't. And of course, that just shows my definitions, my dictionary is out of sorts. I'm not thinking right even in that. But we can be tempted to think, well, they're having a good time now, and I'm not, but they're going to get theirs later, and man, are they going to get it, and I'm going to be having a good time then. 
And there's, there's a warped perspective on truth there. But it's not the full story. For number one, the ungodly's joys now. They're false. They're a facade. They're an escape from the pain of reality that faces them every day if they're honest. And for us, the pleasures of heaven, we enjoy the beginnings of those here. It's not we're miserable as Christians now and that's just the way it has to be, but we'll be happy later. We get paid back later for all the work we're giving God now. You see how devoid of gospel such thinking is. But I don't know that the psalmist here is relishing in the realities of eternal punishment for these that are living their ungodly lives now. He's seeing and meditating on the full expression of the emptiness of life detached from God. What eternity is and even eternal punishment is just the full fruition of what those that are spiritually dead are already experiencing. Alienation from God. You think at times, and sadly it is much more on the surface now than it was at least in my, I guess, advanced years to be sure, but in my youth... The rage that is in the heart of the ungodly. It's either very slightly under the surface or just constantly being expressed. It's one of the things that should mark us as different. We don't have rage just under the surface. It should take a lot To get under our skin. And even then, righteous indignation is a rare thing. Here when the psalmist comes to the realization that he's seen in the house of God. The consummation, the terrors, the slippery places. These are the sad consequences of those that don't enjoy the benefits But the psalmist comes now to understand belong to him. It really should have been the other way. If the ungodly were thinking rightly, they would be envious of the godly. If the godly were thinking rightly, they would never be envious of the foolish. They would pity the ungodly because they don't know joy. They don't know contentment. They don't know real pleasure. From verse 21, Thus my heart was grieved. I was pricked in my reins. So foolish was I and ignorant. I was as a beast before thee. Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast holding me by my right hand. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel and afterward receive me. To glory. Come back to that in a moment. What a word. Receive. Whom have I in heaven but thee? There's none upon earth I desire beside thee. 
My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart. My portion. Boy, ponder that. A psalm that starts with a confession of envy ends with what God had said to the Levites in that typical fashion for Israel. Remember, they didn't have an allotment of land. The different plots given to the other tribes, they were the priestly tribe. They were given cities throughout all the lands, but the Lord told them, I'm your portion. I don't know about you. I don't know how far you went in math. I don't remember how far I went in math. I know I went far enough to have forgotten most of it by now. But I remember this. Infinite is bigger than finite. To have the only one, the only thing that is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, to have God, this triune God, be my portion, my inheritance. How foolish and ignorant is it to be envious of people that pursue a false thing that is a temporary thing. So here... God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For lo, they that are far from thee shall perish. Thou hast destroyed all them that go a-whoring for thee. But it's good for me to draw near to God. I put my trust in the Lord God. It's interesting how the psalmist speaks of his relation to this God. God's relation to the wicked is one of rejection of those being outside Again, I don't possess the willpower, willpower, well that too, but the, the academic horsepower to walk and swim in the waters these creation scientists do. But I just, in reading one of their articles recently, was overwhelmed with just the thought of the Scriptures. What must it be that the Lord speaks about casting the ungodly into outer darkness? To be outside the new heavens and the new earth. But here, the psalmist has spoken of God's relating to him. Not being one of rejection, but one of being held. One of being guided. We've read. And then one of being received. This is what was true of Enoch. The man, when others were following the path of apostasy and deepening sin, the days prior to the flood and its judgment against their sin, he had a right view. He walked with God and God took him. God received him to himself. Here's what Asaph comes to know of all of God's people. And so he comes with a confession and one that we need to be mindful of when we're constantly bombarded with the lie of the world and the lie of the devil. 
that ungodliness brings a good time. And people that don't do this stuff don't have a good time. It's the other way around. Don't be envious of the foolish. Don't have false views of their prosperity. They're in slippery places. They're alienated from God. God is good to Israel. Even to such as are of a clean heart. He will be their portion. He will hold them. He will guide them. He will receive them to Himself. And to the eternal pleasures of loving God and loving neighbor. Through that new heaven and new earth wherein dwells righteousness. Where nothing that offends is allowed inside. Where we have those pleasures forevermore. We saw the struggle perhaps of a, an upright motive last Lord's Day evening. And fretting, looking at the tendencies of our age, the declension and the open sin of our age, and all the remedies to that fretfulness that Psalm 37 brings us. Here's the lower motive. Here's where if we don't deal with that fretfulness and regain gospel thinking, we can drift from caring about right and wrong and being perplexed about what's going on and lacking proper trust in God to thinking wrongly about right and wrong, of envying the lie that's put before us. Let us hear Asaph's story. Let us hear his confession of how ignorant and foolish such thinking is. And let us with him say and understand the heart of it Whom have I in heaven but thee? Here is a a right perspective on inheritance. Here's a right perspective on happiness. And that eternal perspective brings us to understand there's nothing even on earth. They're not having it good now and bad later. And we have it bad now and good later. They have it bad, period. And we have it good period. The temporary circumstances of now are just that. The eternal view is what we need. And God is the portion of His people. And at His right hand, their pleasures forevermore. As a right view of the world, we should pity and shun ungodliness rather than envy it. Because it is not a thing to be envied. There's nothing good or happy about it at all. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, we thank You tonight for a gospel to sing of with Your people. We thank You tonight for a living Word that speaks through the generations of this fallen earth and gives light. The entrance of Your Word gives light. Your Word is living and powerful. Lord, use it in the heart of some young person tonight. Use it in the heart of some old person tonight.
Help us constantly to be checking and guiding our thinking according to truth, according to reality, not according to lies. No matter how popular, how prevalent, how powerful the lies may seem to be, give us that gospel, spiritual understanding, and let us marvel at the goodness of God to His chosen people. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.